Okay, Mark, chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. And let's pray, Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We pray that you would enlighten our minds now by your Holy Spirit and grant to us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Oh, well, uh, let me add my welcome. I'm Mike, one of the pastors here. And as you've heard several times, we're beginning a new series in Mark's Gospel. Better put my glasses on or we'll get, get lost. Do you have a hero? I wonder. In recent times, there have been some great films and TV programs celebrating heroes. Winston Churchill vanquished a deadly foe. Abraham Lincoln emancipated slaves. Mrs. Emmeline Pankhurst fought and won the right to vote for women. We are right to celebrate their work, aren't we? Fine achievements. We love stories of heroes and their labor to overcome. It gives us hope, I think, that someone will sort it out. And yet, in spite of Churchill, Lincoln, and Pankhurst, there are still wars and deadly foes. Many people are in slavery today. I have read, I find it hard to believe this, but, but go and check this, that more people are in slavery today than in the entire history of the transatlantic slave trade. 
Women may have the vote in many countries, but what really is their lot around the world? We need heroes, but our heroes are never quite big enough. Is this why there are so many superhero films? Now, ancient people were just like us. Take Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He was a strong man of great ability and talent. He had a relentless drive for power. He became Caesar by crushing every rival. The last opponent he had was Mark Antony, married to Cleopatra, queen of Egypt. She looked just like Elizabeth Taylor. That was a joke for the over 50s. After a devastating military defeat, Antony and Cleopatra took their own lives, and so Augustus came to power. He turned Rome for a republic to, from a republic to an empire. He made himself the first emperor. He said he had brought peace and justice to the entire world. He declared that his father, Julius Caesar, was a god, so that made Augustus the son of God. What did he achieve? Big claims were made. In fact, during his reign, an inscription was carved that's been discovered by archaeologists. It says this, The birthday of Augustus, the God, was the beginning for the world of the gospel, the glad tidings that have come to men through him. It said that he was a savior for us who makes war to cease and created order everywhere. Did he really achieve all that? Of course not. Most of us had barely heard of Caesar Augustus before we came in here this morning. But during Caesar's reign, a baby boy was born in an obscure corner of his empire in occupied Palestine. His family were Jewish. He grew up learning the carpenter's trade. At the age of 30, he became a public teacher and gathered a movement. Three years later, three short years, he was executed by the Roman authorities on a brutal cross. He was 33 years old. That's a short life, isn't it? And yet his followers claimed that he then rose from the dead as he had clearly predicted. They said that he had ascended to heaven and now sat in the place of authority and power at the right hand of God himself. They said that one day he would return to judge and renew the world. They said that now was a time of amnesty to make peace with him and join his kingdom before it was too late. They said that his death was not an accident or a tragedy, but a deliberate choice. He had died to pay a penalty. It was a sacrifice to pay for the sins and guilt of countless people. They said he was now willing to forgive anyone, that his grace and mercy were amazing. They said that this hero was worth betting your life on. And they did. Many of them gave their lives for his cause. They still do. Because they believe that he is the one true hero that the world ever knew. His name was Jesus. Now, a few years after his death and resurrection, some of Jesus' followers were preaching and a riot kicked off in the city. You can read about it in the Bible in Acts chapter 17. These followers of Jesus were dragged before the authorities and people shouted these words. These men who have turned the world upside down have now come here also. Turned the world upside down. You know, they were so nearly right. The world was being turned upside down. But not by those men, but by Jesus. And by the power of the message about him, which is called the good news, the glad news, the gospel. 
Now today we're starting this series which we plan to go through, God willing, for about six months to go through the, the Gospel of Mark to encounter Jesus again. Most scholars regard Mark as the first gospel written down, and an old tradition says that Mark, who was a close associate of, of Peter, they said that Mark wrote down Peter's preaching and crafted the book. And it does have a sort of flavor of the spoken word about it. It is short, powerful, and punchy. The English poet Lawrence Houseman wrote these words beautifully. He said Mark was the saint who first found grace to pen the life which was the life of men. The life which was the life of men. You see, this is not just another book. It is a story that changes everything. It's the life that was our life because it's the story of Jesus Christ. Within 400 years of this book, Mark, being written, Christianity had transformed the Roman world. Rodney Stark, an eminent American sociologist, points out that Christians prohibited infanticide, killing of infants, and abortion. I'm going to share a couple of unpleasant things with you today just to make us realize what inheritance Christianity gave to the world. This was commonplace at the time the gospel was born. This is a letter from a Roman man, Hilarion, to his pregnant wife, Alice. He says, know that I'm still in Alexandria, and don't worry if they all come back and I remain in Alexandria. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son. She's pregnant. They don't know it's the son. I ask you to take good care of our baby son, and as soon as I receive payment, I shall send it to you. If you are delivered of a child before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If a girl, discard it. Girls, unwanted girls, were left on the rubbish tip exposed to die. Christians rescued them and brought them up. So in the early church, the majority, the majority of people were women, partly because many of them had been rescued as babies. One more quotation. This was found in uh, the early 90s. Lawrence Steger and his colleagues made a gruesome discovery in the sewer that ran under the bathhouse. The sewer had been clogged with refuse when excavated and dry sieved the sewage. We found the bones of nearly 100 little babies apparently murdered and thrown into the sewer. Examination of the bones revealed them to be newborns, probably day old. Most of them would be girls. That was the world Christianity was born in. Christians introduced the idea of consent and covenant into sexuality. It was brand new, that idea. Prior to this, the man of the house could have sex with anyone he wanted at any time and then order them to have an abortion. Christians introduced the idea of consent. The Me Too movement owes its origins to Christianity. The idea that God loves those who love him was entirely new. The connection with that, that because, because God loves us, Christians may not please one another, God, unless they love one another, was something entirely new. Perhaps even more revolutionary was the idea that Christians ought to extend love and charity beyond their own family and tribe to all those who called on the name of Jesus and indeed even beyond to those around the Christian community. The philosophers regarded mercy and pity as character defects to be avoided by rational people. 
Pity was a character defect. It was excusable only in those who haven't grown up. They thought it was an impulsive response, an ignorant thing to show pity. Because mercy means you're providing unearned help or relief, and therefore it's not, it's not just. But Christians taught that mercy is one of the primary virtues, that a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. They offered a new culture that was stripped of ethnic boundaries. They prompted social relations that, within the sexes of respect and tolerance within the family. Christians modulated class differences. Now the slave and the noble greeted one another as brother and sister. But perhaps all, above all, as Christianity brought a new conception of humanity to a world that was saturated with cruelty and the love of death. You could take your child, your, your, your young child, to the Colosseum and watch human beings being torn apart for sport. That was the world they, that Christianity was born in. So what Christianity gave to its converts was nothing less than their humanity. Now what is Mark's contribution to this story? It is a gospel and this is the story that changes everything for those original followers of Jesus and then for their world. And it is the story that can change everything for you too, by the way, if you will allow its power into your life. We begin with these first 13 verses. It's great because here, right at the start of the book, Mark, the author, gives us the keys. He doesn't wait to the end to reveal the mystery. He tells us right at the start who Jesus is. And it's funny because all through the book, people keep asking, who is this? Who is this Jesus? How does he do these things? Why does he think he can talk like that? And, and you're going to see this as we go through the book. People, wherever Jesus goes, they ask this question, who is this? It's like a secret. Everyone asks it. Religious leaders, his hometown, his disciples, even his own family. Who is this? But you get the answer right at the beginning. The author gives it to you. Here we are, verse 1. Have a look with me in your Bible, please. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. There we are. He's the Messiah, a promised human king, a royal king who would save the world, and he's the Son of God. Now what that means will become clearer as time goes by. So there's the headline. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus. And now we're going to see how it's unpacked. And I just have three points today. I'm going to try and get through them quickly. They are the majesty of Jesus, the mission of of Jesus and the meekness of Jesus, his majesty, his mission, and his meekness. Majesty. Now, you know that whenever someone really important, a VIP, visits a city or a school or a public place, people get ready, don't they? They tidy up, they clean the streets, they put on their best clothes, they generally prepare themselves. They say, you know, that wherever the queen goes, she smells fresh paint. My sister-in-law works in the film industry. One day, the office heard that Tom Cruise was visiting the office that week. She said that on the day Tom Cruise visited, every woman in the office looked like a million dollars. No tracky bottoms for Tom. Now, this story we have here in, in Mark begins with a, a figure called John the Baptist. And we, we hear in verse 3 that his role is to prepare the way for a very important person. Not just a celebrity or even a royal person, but actually to prepare the way for God himself. That's what Jewish people understand by the title Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. 
Now, John is the guy with the loud hailer, uh, coming before the important person and saying, shouting, you know, clear the roads, get ready. Get that bin out of the way. Clean up your act. Get ready. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. So John has a tremendously important role in the Bible. He's the messenger who announces that the Lord is coming. But what would you think of a messenger who was dressed like John? Look what it says there in verse 6. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. You know, this is retro. It's vintage. This is the kind of outfit my son buys in vintage stores in Camden. John also has an interesting diet. Did you spot that? He ate locusts and wild honey. I don't know if he dipped them, you know. I mean, what, is this the paleo diet? No. Although strange to us, you know, when the first readers heard this uh, description, they knew exactly what it was talking about. Just as if you heard a description of a man dressed in blue with a red cape and a large letter S on his chest and wearing his underpants on the outside, you would know immediately, ah, he's like Superman. And people hear about the hairy garment and the leather belt and they think, ah, he's like Elijah. He's like Elijah. Just listen to this from 2 Kings 1 verse 8. They replied, He had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. And the king said, ah, didn't say that. The king said, that was Elijah, the Tishbite. Now, it is true that John's wardrobe is rather vintage, but this is deliberate. He wants to make people make a connection. He wants to look like an old school prophet because even his clothes are part of his message. It's a bit of theater. And here's the connection that John wants us to make. Right back in the Old Testament from the last book, Malachi, sometimes known as the Italian prophet Malachi. Malachi, the closing words of the Old Testament here, Malachi 4. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else... I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now that is ominous. This is how the the Hebrew Bible ends. I will send this prophet before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, the day of judgment, when people cry out for the rocks to cover them. And he will turn the hearts, hearts to each other. Or else... I will come and strike the land with absolute, total destruction. That is a threat. And with those words ringing in your ears, listen to this from Malachi 3. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it is. Look again at Mark chapter 1, verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Now, we'll come in a moment to why he says it's written in Isaiah, but then he quotes from Malachi. We'll we'll come to that in a moment. Just don't worry. But John here, bear in mind, he's deliberately acting like a wilderness prophet. He's gone down to the River Jordan, historic site where the Israelites entered into the land many, many years before. And he's saying, God, the Lord, 
is coming back. So get ready. Oh my goodness, prepare your, the way. Make the path straight. Sort your life out. Wake up. You don't want to be harboring anything bad when the Lord comes back, do you? And this quote from Malachi is ominous. So John preaches repentance. Repentance means turn around. Turn around, a change of mind that leads to a change of life. Turn around. And he preaches a baptism of repentance, of forgiveness of sins. This baptism was a familiar ritual. People would be plunged into water and lifted out. And it, it suggests um, a, a cleansing. You're submitted to being cleansed. And you're coming out new and clean. And so to go through that, you have, before you go through baptism, you have to admit that you need it. You have to admit that you're dirty. You're immoral. You're not what you should be. In other words, John the Baptist is telling the whole nation that they are unclean, that they're impure, that they need washing. And baptism is this symbol of being cleansed spiritually. And John's ministry actually had a very powerful impact. Let's not miss this. Verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. John is a national phenomenon. Town and country go to him. He is is rocking the, he's, he's rattling the cage and rocking the boat. People are thinking, my goodness, who is this person out in the wilderness reminding us of, the, of Malachi and the Bible? We better go out. We better sort things out. It has this powerful impact. But Right there with this quote about, um, from Malachi about preparing the way is another quotation, and this is from Isaiah. Verse 3, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. Now this is a technique that's known in Jewish writings of that time where they would take two or maybe three quotes from different parts of the Bible and link them together in a kind of combination quote and it's deliberately being done to make connections, to make people think and, and scrutinize and go back and search their Bible and see what sort of links are being made. And this is from the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our Lord. This is huge. Because what this tells us is that the messenger is preparing the way for God. And the context of Isaiah is a promised new exodus. A founding moment for the Israelite people, the Jewish people. Their founding moment in their history was the exodus. They were rescued from slavery, from cruel oppression, from genocide. They were brought out of Egypt with the mighty hand of God through miracles they were brought through the Red Sea, which parted for them. They came through like a new creation, and they went into the wilderness. But Israel had lost it all. They'd been deported, broken, exiled. They were now back in their land, but most of the tribes were gone. They were underneath the boot of the Roman Empire. But they had this future hope that Isaiah had promised a new exodus. In the future, the Lord would come back. He would not abandon them forever. Now, John's main message here is 
it's not about me. Look at verse 7. This was his message. After me comes one, the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now that's quite a build-up, isn't it? Here we have John, this huge figure, out in the wilderness. And he says, forget about me. I'm just here to, to make the way ready. I'm not going to step aside. I'm only here to tell you about the one who's coming. And I, he's so powerful, I couldn't even stoop down and tie up his shoelace. So who is this one, this powerful one, that everyone should make way for? And here it is in verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just think for a moment here. The majesty of Jesus. Just think who we're dealing with here. Already in these first two verses, Mark has quoted things that are only true about God himself. And yet he's applied them to Jesus Christ, this human. And this is a pattern we're going to see again and again in this gospel. Jesus will do things that only God can do. The, the disciples, they're all in a boat and it's kicking up a furious storm. And they think, actually, the boat's going to be capsized. It's that severe. And some of these were fishermen. They weren't easily scared. And they're terrified by this storm. And they wake Jesus. He's sleeping? They wake him up and he just stands up and says, quiet, be still. And down it goes. And then the disciples were more terrified about Jesus than they had been about the storm. He can take a packed lunch and feed thousands of people. A creation miracle. He has command over the spirit world. Only God can do these things. He claims he can forgive your sins. Only God can do these things. Again and again and again. We see the majesty of Jesus Christ. And here it is at the beginning. Now, Mark is telling us that this human Messiah is here and he is God in the flesh. That's his majesty. Secondly, the mission of Jesus. In any good hero story, you know, there's always a job to be done, isn't there? There's a problem to be solved. And usually in these superhero films, the world's about to be destroyed by the latest evil megalomaniac. And so the heroes have to find out how to do it. There's a crisis to resolve. People are in trouble. They need help. There's danger on all sides. How is the hero going to deal with it? We love a good narrative like that. And Jesus has a mission too. This is the second key that we get here at the beginning of Mark. And it's described in verse 8. John compares what he is doing with what Jesus will do. He says, I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's as if John is saying, look, I know I called you down to the Jordan River to be baptized and repent of your sins. I know you're being washed in this river for the forgiveness of sins. But did you really think that a dip in a dirty river is going to do that much? You think it's really going to solve your spiritual problem? Can it give you the new heart that you need? Can a dip in the Jordan River give you with a new moral center and compass that you can help you make right choices again and again? Of course not. You need something much more. You need a new heart. And that something more comes through the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, prophets had foretold a time when God would pour out his Spirit on all people and that would start a new era. Joel chapter 2 predicts a great time of salvation and says God will pour out his spirit 
so that they will all know me. We will, everyone with the Spirit will know God for themselves and can teach each other. Jeremiah 31 connects this time, this future time, to a fresh forgiveness when God will remember our sins no more. He promises to make a new covenant with people so they can know God personally. Ezekiel chapter 36 promised that God will give people a new heart. Talks about it as a heart of flesh, feeling and responsive and tender, rather than a heart of stone that is hard-hearted. So we will be moved to love God and obey him. And then after that in Ezekiel follows a, a picture of human flourishing. So Joel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you get the picture. The spirit will come and he will bring in a new era and give us new hearts. All of this is promised in the Old Testament as the era of the spirit and none of it came until Jesus. And now John says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is not a liquid. He's a spirit, non-physical. But baptism is a picture, remember, of being immersed, plunged into something. And when Jesus comes forward to be baptized himself, he receives the Holy Spirit. God sends his spirit on Jesus, empowering him for all the works that are to come. There it is in verse 10. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Jesus becomes the one here who brings the Holy Spirit. This too is a thing that only God can do. All that was promised by those prophets is now coming to pass. Now that Jesus is here. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is when Jesus Christ becomes Lord of your life and he's Lord of all or not at all and you then receive the Holy Spirit, you get a new heart and you know God for yourself. Some movements in Christianity, particularly in the 20th century, have confused the baptism of the Holy Spirit with a second experience after conversion where people speak in tongues. It's an understandable view, but in, in my opinion, it's a mistaken one. You're baptized in the Holy Spirit at the moment you become a Christian, when you're born again by the Spirit from above. At that point, you get a new heart, and you get to know God for yourself and live for him. So let me ask, friends, has that happened to you? Has it happened to you? Have you received the new birth? People can go to church for decades and never actually be converted. How would you know if you were really a Christian? The Bible talks about the Spirit in us bearing fruit. The fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There are nine things you could look at and ask somebody who knows you well, am I, am I bearing the fruit of the Spirit? This is not about dramatic experiences, friends. This is not about the Holy Spirit giving you some kind of weird experience and feeling electrified and doing crazy stuff. It's, it actually is very ordinary because the fruit of the Spirit is seen in your character. A new heart brought by the Spirit 
that loves God and loves our neighbor. Has it happened to you? You know, if it hasn't, it can happen today. If you come to Jesus in faith, confess your sins, lean on him for mercy. Jesus can do all of this because he is the only begotten Son of God. Look again at verse 10 and 11. Heaven is ripped open. God is coming out. Isaiah 64 had said, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It's happening. The Spirit comes down like a dove, like the Spirit of God, hovering over the waters at the very beginning of creation, in the beginning of the Bible. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters, ready to make a a creation. And here, ready to make a new creation, which is us, God's people. And the voice speaks, God the Father speaking to Jesus for our benefit. You are my son. A direct quotation from Psalm 2. A royal enthronement. You are my son, whom I love. Hinting at Genesis 22, where Isaac was the son that Abraham loved. And what happened to Isaac? Abraham had to be ready to offer him as a sacrifice. And there's a hint already that God, God is the Father is willing to offer this son as a sacrifice for our sins. What a wonderful picture here of the nature of our God, a trinity of persons, Father speaking, Spirit descending on the Son, saying, listen to him. And right at the start of Jesus' public ministry, he, hears the, he receives the Spirit and hears the, the voice of God and the Father affirms him in his mission. God's chosen King come to put the world to rights. The majesty of Jesus, the mission of Jesus to give you a new heart. Thirdly, very quickly, the meekness of Jesus. His meekness. This is maybe the most surprising thing. In light of everything that's been said about his power and his majesty and his awesomeness, it's that Jesus is humble gentle and obedient and this is what he's like what's the first thing that the holy spirit does after coming to jesus verse 12 he sent him out into the wilderness and this word sent out is not a gentle leading there you go jesus have a nice time in the wilderness it's a it's the word that's that's used when a demon is expelled driven out the spirit drives him out into the wilderness. And this is how Jesus' spectacular mission begins in the desert. <laughs> Unseen by anyone. Tested to the limit. Assaulted by the fiercest opponent of humanity. Satan. Jesus must pass through the desert test alone. Without his companions. Surrounded by wild beasts. Attacked by Satan. He has only the angels to comfort him. And Jesus passes the test He will not doubt God. He will not take his power for himself and serve himself. He will obey God to the limit. It says that he was in the wilderness for 40 days. And this number 40 should ring a bell for us. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. In the desert for 40 years, they disobeyed God and they died in the wilderness. Moses was on the mountain of Sinai 40 days. He received the law. It was broken. Jesus went to the desert for 40 days and he obeyed God. He passed probation. He started a new covenant. 
Even the wild beasts here are a hint of Adam, aren't they? Our first parent who failed the test. Jesus, the new Israel. Jesus, the second Adam who to our, the fight and our rescue came. What does this teach us? Jesus is here to identify with you, with his people. He doesn't need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He's never sinned. He undergoes baptism because he's one of us. He's identifying with us. Solidarity with you. He is in absolute solidarity with us. He obeyed the law of God when we'd disobeyed it and broken it. And he did it on our behalf. This then is the beginning of the good news that this one has come. This one has come. So friends, whatever your experience right now in your life, will you bring it into his presence now? Whatever your experience is right now, bring it into his presence. He is here by the power of the Holy Spirit. See his majesty. See his mission. Witness his meekness and obedience and consider this. This good news is that this Jesus is for you, not against you. He stands with you by your side in absolute solidarity. So let's make sure that we make straight paths in our lives so that Jesus can come in, shall we? Let's make this year a year of being filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we get so familiar with these sacred things. We've, some of us have read Mark hundreds of times. And yet, you have the words of eternal life. We have nowhere else to go. We ask that you would help us now in this moment and in this song in our worship together to bring our lives under your rule again and perhaps for one person here to experience the new birth for the very first time. We ask in your name. Amen.